This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. Our goal and mission at Parent Footprint is to create a loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. We believe that the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us adults to be happy, healthy, and engaged in our life. And the more we can become aware, we can parent with purpose and intention in line with our own vision of successful parenting. This show, I am very fortunate to get to interview amazing educators and individuals in the allied fields of medicine, authoring, and parenting, and teaching. And today, our show is called Perfectionism, a Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. That happens to be the title of our guest's brand new book, Just Out, called Perfectionism, a Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. Creative title, right? I know. So I'd like to welcome my trusted colleague, Lisa Van Gammert. And let me tell you a little bit about Lisa. Lisa is a very interesting and engaging person. She uses a combination of neuropsychology, pedagogy, humor, experience, technology, and sheer fun. I've witnessed it. To share best practices in education with audiences literally around the world. She's an expert consult on television shows, including Lifetime's Child Genius and a writer of award-winning lessons plans, as well as numerous public articles on social psychology and pedagogy, and ex- this book, which is just out, which I've mentioned, and I'm going to keep mentioning, Perfectionism, Practical Strategies for Managing Never Good Enough. Lisa is a former teacher, a s- former school administrator, and a youth and education ambassador for Menza, and she shares resources to educators and parents on her website, giftedguru.com. Finally, she is the co-founder of the Gifted Guild, which is a professional community for educators of the gifted. And equally important, Lisa has a husband named Steve and three amazing young adult sons, and she lives in Arlington, Texas. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. It's really a pleasure to be with you. So with Lisa and I have something in common. We are both recovering perfectionists, and we've talked about this quite a a bunch over the years, right, Lisa? Yes, we have. Yes. So We've today covered we covered it perfectly. We have covered it perfectly. And today in the show, if we make a mistake, we are modeling for all of you how to push through mistakes and that it's not the end of the world. Okay, so here we go. So Lisa, tell everyone how did you come to this topic, being passionate about this topic and writing a book about this topic? Well, unfortunately, I came about it very organically. Um, I have always been somewhat of a perfectionistic person, although, you know, when you're young, you think that the way you are is just the way that you are. But the first time that I realized this was a problem and I started paying attention and that it, it caught my intellectual imagination was when I was in college and I was taking a class I really loved on logic. And I realized... 
a couple of days before the drop deadline that I had an A minus in the class. And at my university, an A minus was a 3.7 instead of a 4.0. And rather than risk ending up the end of the semester with a 3.7 for that class, I dropped it, even though I loved the class and have regretted it ever since. And that moment was one where I realized, oh, I have a problem. And ever since then, perfectionism has caught my imagination. It's been part of my personal and professional interest ever since. And that was what led me to decide to try to write a book as I had seen students of mine, um, children of friends of mine, so many people in so much pain. And just from the decades that I myself had struggled with it and had come to find some things that worked for me. I really wanted to share them. You know, like so many words uh, in our culture, they just become, um, they become just well-known words. And perfectionism is one of these words. Um, but I, I, there's lots of varied ideas about what perfectionism is. How do you define perfectionism? Well, you bring up a really important point because how people just normally in conversation would think about the word perfectionism versus how it's written about in academic literature versus how it's approached in education programs or in athletics or the arts is all very different perspectives that lead different interpretations and meanings. And we can get caught up in the semantics. And so I do think it's important to clarify when someone is talking about perfectionism, what do they mean? When I talk about perfectionism, what I mean is when someone has a combination of impossibly high standards and they're trying to be flawless and they're very hard on themselves and they're very concerned about what other people think and that they feel that when they fail, it's indicative of a pervasive worthlessness and it's hurting them. So just having very high standards, just wanting things to be neat or clean or done well um, would not meet my definition of perfectionism. I would have to kind of have this alphabet soup of lots of negative effects and impacts and motivations. Oh yeah, and in your definition, it seems like the the rock the is roll the stones rolling down the hill, and it gets like it's bad and bad and bad, and ends up with pain and negativity, which which brings me to this idea that. You know, is all perfectionism bad? Because there seems to be a debate in the field about it's all bad or there's good perfectionism and there's bad perfectionism. What do you think? Yeah, that is an interesting one. You don't think about academicians having kind of knockdown, drag out fights over, over ideas, but this is one where there really is a debate. And the terms that they use in the literature are adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism. And through the reading I've done and through the experience that I've had, my own belief is that it depends on what you mean by perfectionism. If you are looking at perfectionism as something that is always negative in the sense that it meets the definition that I said, then yes, that would be bad. However, if you have high standards, but you're, you don't really care what other people think, you're not hard on yourself when you don't attain those standards, you just set very high standards that maybe even other people would find unreasonable, but they work for you. They cause you no pain. If you don't meet them, you don't feel like you're worthless. It causes you no pain. You're, you're not trying to be flawless. You just have high standards. To me, then it's unlikely that perfectionism, perfectionism is really causing a difficulty for you. And in that way, it wouldn't be bad 
even though other people might label you a perfectionist. At the same time, mm-hmm. there are times when we need someone to be a perfectionist. I've had students who were on medications that needed to be taken at certain times and in certain doses, or they had to be very, very careful about strong food allergies. If you have a child who is allergic to nuts, you want them to be a perfectionist about making sure that they don't eat food with nuts. So some of it is contextual. Um, right. And we want, as, um, as one of our um, colleagues says, like if you, if you want your um, heart surgeon or your brain surgeon to be a perfectionist, in a sense, as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think that what we look at when we look at negative views of perfectionism is when we combine unreasonable expectations of ourselves with a lack of self-love. Ooh, okay, you just simplify that wonderfully. Unreasonable expectations with a lack of self-love. I like that, because then that distinguishes between what people talk about with uh, this perfectionistic thing, which can be negative, and striving for excellence, which is often thought of more with like positive or adaptive perfectionism, which is, you know, you're just trying to be at your best, peak performance, new invention, but you're okay of making mistakes and it's not the end of the the world if you fail. Right, exactly. So on that note, for parents and educators listening to this, how do they spot it in their kids and their students? You know, it, it can be difficult to tease out whether it's causing pain or not. But some of the things to look for are um, kids who are disappointed with high levels of achievement or effort. They gave all they had, they know they did, and even though they did well, they're still disappointed. These are the kids asking for extra credit even when their grade is one of the highest in the class. Constant approval seeking. Um, Mm -hmm. You'll see this with kids in classes where they'll – they'll start an assignment and they check in too often with the Mm -hmm. teacher. Is this right? Is this right? Is this right? When they are stressed out with the frustration of having it in their mind, what the assignment or project should look like. And then frustrated to a lot of times the point of physical manifestation of that frustration when they can't make the thing look like it does in their heads. Um, when you see that kind of frustration with things that look just like what anybody would expect to look from a child of that age or ability, and yet they are so frustrated because they can't make it look the way they thought, that's a sign. Another one is when they quit things that they'd otherwise like, like I right. did in my logic class, um, mm-hmm. when, and then when they don't want to take risks, when they mm-hmm. only want to do things or participate in things that they know they are already good at. They don't want to try anything new. They don't want to do anything unless there's a, they have a high confidence interval that they'll be good at it right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, this, this can be gray. Like, you know, as a parent, like everything you mentioned is, is sort of a normal child slash human mm-hmm. characteristic. When, when does it seem to be enough that a parent would want to really look at this seriously, this idea of perfectionism and, and negatively impacting their child? I think it's very much aligned with any other mental health issue. So let's look at anxiety, for example, which is one of your areas of extreme expertise. Everybody has anxiety. Everybody mm-hmm. feels anxious sometimes. Anxiety is a normal part of life. The problem is when anxiety becomes 
paralyzing, when it prevents you from doing things you would otherwise do, when it, when it becomes um, something that interferes with your ability to live your life in a way that you otherwise would. And it's very similar with perfectionism, that all mm-hmm. of us have tendencies. This isn't a dichotomy. It isn't you either are a perfectionist or you're not. It's, a, like so many other things, a continuum. And we can be more perfectionistic in some areas than others. And so the same kid who's a perfectionist about schoolwork, their bedroom could look like the site of Armageddon. And so Mm -hmm. what you have to look for is the same thing that you would look for with depression or anxiety or eating habits, anything that is interfering with a child's ability to live their life in an emotionally healthy way. So I would go back to the definition that I gave of unreasonable expectations combined with a lack of self-love. If you consistently hear things from a child like, I'm so stupid, I never do anything right, I wish I'd never been born, I don't know why you even keep me, these kinds of things that come out not once, not twice, but as a pattern. When we see the child in psychic pain, Mm -hmm. Um, because of a persistent pattern of this. Right, and you bring out an important issue. Um, I see lots of clients with this um, characteristic and on this continuum, and it's really common for kids to say things that freak us parents out. It's really common in a perfectionistic meltdown or a perfectionistic paradigm for kids to say, I wish I was never born. I just want to be dead. You know, why did you even have me? And a lot of people think, well, gosh, they they must have depression. And really, I mean, they might be depressed in that moment. But often we see that's the response of an intense kid who is perfectionistic and being so critically harsh on themselves for a mistake or even a perceived mistake. Right. And because that is not uncommon. Mm hmm. And we ourselves may have done similar things, but we just don't remember. Um, But if we ask our own parents, they might remember similar outbursts that we had. What we have to look at when we're looking at how strongly we need to intervene, rather than just using some good strategies that work with anybody, but rather whether we need uh, help of a mental health professional in dealing with this, is when we see a pervasive pattern, a pervasive Mm -hmm. and persistent pattern, something that lasts over time, something that isn't just situationally responsive, meaning something that doesn't only rear its head in very narrow things, but rather crosses boundaries of different aspects of the child's life. They're having this same kind of reaction in in lots of places and um, domains and in front of other people and where it may be, um, well, as you know, perfectionism can be a part of what we see in the umbrella of the diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. And right. so when we, when, when we see that, then we're going to see that, that level of pain, that level of unreasonableness, and it's going to go on and it's going to be debilitating. Right. And I like what you say in all of this. It's really about looking at uh, the patterns, um, how chronic, how severe, and how much they're actually um, causing a negative impact in the child's life. Um, The other thing which is interesting, you know, we talk about uh, covering, being recovering perfectionists and also um, working with lots of families who deal with this as well. You know, most things are, you know, we still talk about nature-nurture. 
a lot of things are heritable and a lot of things are learned. And so apples often don't far from the trees, right? So as parents really have to look at our own behavior when we are looking at this with our kids. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's interesting because it goes, it can go one of two ways because sometimes you have that apple tree phenomenon where the children look remarkably like the parents and every educator has had the experience of having a child who is behaving in a way that's unusual and they meet the parent and they're like, oh, okay, all becomes clear. <laughs> right. But the other thing that can happen is that you can have a parent who's way the other way and a child mm-hmm. in a form of trying to bring everything to kind of the middle will become perfectionistic in an attempt to balance out an overly laissez-faire parent. So sometimes we see perfectionistic kids whose parents are kind of out of control of their own lives. The, the family's house is in chaos, whether physically with the actual objects that are in the home with mess, but also sometimes just in the scheduling and patterning and the way that the home is run, like no dinner times and no bedtimes and no expectations and just kind of everything haphazard in the life. Oh, were we supposed to go to that? And parents who are forgetful and unorganized themselves, sometimes the kid will boomerang the other way. Mm-hmm. And you will get perfectionistic kids from parents who are like, this kid must have been switched at birth because I'm not like this at all. Right, right. And I think the take home is it's regardless, it's important that we parents look at our own our own behavior and just have the awareness of our own behavior just to even take a temperature of are we doing anything that could be contributing to this? This is not these aren't this isn't a parent blaming situation. This is who am I? How am I parenting? What is temperamentally alike with my kid or my spouse? And are there any environmental stressors contributing? So the whole point is just to be aware of of what's going on with us and our kids as we're trying to parent them on this this journey. I completely agree. In addition to being self-reflective about who we are right now as parents, it's also helpful to be self-reflective about how we were as children and mm-hmm. what caused us pain when we were children. And sometimes we can remember, and sometimes we need to seek feedback from our parents or grandparents or other people, cousins, who knew us when we were children. And sometimes we don't see ourselves in our children as we are now vis-a-vis how they are now. But if we're honest with ourselves and if we seek information from others who know, we sometimes will find ourselves as we were in our children as they are now. And it's important to do that reflection because oftentimes we are not and would never intentionally harm our child, but sometimes in the things that we've done to heal ourselves from pain that we felt as children, we sometimes tamp down too hard on our own children and go the other way. Right, and I'm even thinking right now, I'm having a flashback of a personal example, is our kids like to do, especially when they were young, like to do art. And, you know, they'd come up just really not, and we have a lot of art and art people in our family and come up, hey, dad, look at this. What do you think? And I was shocked when I was finding my response would be like, that's really great. Oh, and you might want to add a little bit more to this tree, you know, not realizing like that is the totally perfectionistic pass down right there. Like, and, and it seems so, um, so um, innocent 
And but but there, it's the little things that we we really need to be aware of. So your book has tons of information and helpful strategies because of course the motivation in this is that we all of us human beings can change you know once we become aware of something and have motivation we can we can change and um you know you're an example of that from from your story what can you give parents some ideas of some of the strategies that you recommend um, for helping their kids deal with perfectionism i'd love to i want to add one thing here which is that my real goal in writing the book was to help people see perfectionism less like cancer and more like diabetes. So uh. less like something that we're going to cure and that we have to kill it at all costs. Mm-hmm. And even if it hurts us in the process, which we are willing to do with cancer, mm-hmm. with, as opposed to diabetes where you manage it with diet and, and medication if needed, but you understand that, um, especially with type 1 diabetes, you're going to live with this all your life, and it's a chronic condition. And so we're not going to ever cure kids of being perfectionists in the sense that our goal is not to take a kid from being having perfectionistic tendencies to being overly casual and not caring at all about standards, right? We're, what we're doing is trying to dial it back to where it's not causing pain and where the standards go from being unreasonable to being reasonable. So all of the strategies in the book are designed to do that. They're not going to take a kid from being a perfectionist to not caring about their grades. Okay, so let me add one thing. I agree with you. I got to add one point here before these, your great strategies. So doing this with parents a lot, the fear is when we talk about some of these strategies of like backing off, having them fail, and all these some, some of these things that you will probably be talking to us about, is the worry of the parents is, oh my God, my kid is going to become a slacker. And I, I say to them with confidence now, having done this for a while, is I have never seen a perfectionist turn into a slacker. Like it doesn't, Yes, we get perfectionists who are afraid to do something because of failure, but that's different than turning into a slacker. Like, we're just trying to help them turn down the volume a little bit. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're not, there's no danger that they're going to say, oh, okay, I don't have to be perfect, therefore anything goes, right? Well, then I'll drop out of school, right? That's not the pattern. Yeah, that's not the pattern. So one of my favorite strategies, I would say my go-to strategy and the thing I start with first, because it's so easy, is um, a strategy that involves levels. So assigning activities a level. So something that is a level one is something that needs to be done, but it doesn't really matter how well it's done, right? So I mm-hmm. use the example of my children making their beds. You know, I'm not going to put a picture of their bed on Pinterest. It, it doesn't need to be perfect. The pillows don't have to be arranged exactly. The covers don't have to be turned down perfectly. It doesn't need hospital corners or to be able to bounce a quarter on it, right? All I want is basically nothing related to the bed lying on the floor. That's mm-hmm. a one. It needs to be done, but it, it doesn't really matter how well it needs to be done. A five, which would be the top in my level strategy, so the levels would go from one to five. A five would be you need to do your absolute best, something very, very critical is at stake. And this goes back to what you said about, like, you want your neurosurgeon to be a perfectionist. So neurosurgery is a five. When you are doing something that something important is at stake, where if it's not done well, 
as well as you could do it, somebody could be harmed, either physically or emotionally, especially deeply harmed, that is a five. And it's worth the very best you have. It's worth a little worry. It's worth a little perfectionism. Right. Most things are about a three. Mm-hmm. Most things are about a three. You know, a three is just, it needs to be done well. Um, it's worth doing well. Maybe it's going to be evaluated. It may not be the end of the world if it doesn't come out right, but there will be a consequence if it doesn't. And most things are about a three. Most of the things that we're willing to spend our life doing are about a three. Unfortunately, perfectionists see everything as a five. Mm -hmm. Everything is a five. And so if we can work with kids to actually have this conversation and have this discussion about different levels and what things are, and say, well, this thing that you're working on right now, what level do you think it really is? And then compare that to the level of effort that the person is giving. You know, you're kind of giving level five effort to something that's a one. And that can be helpful doing those levels combined with another strategy that involves time, which is Hmm. one of the hallmark traits of our perfectionistic kids is spending four hours on homework when 10 minutes would do. Yikes. And this can cause tremendous pain and contention and exasperation and frustration in a family. And it can also cause a lot of conflict with the school because Mm -hmm. the parents are feeling like the teacher is unreasonable in assigning all of this homework where the teacher is at school thinking, you know, that should have only taken 10 minutes. I don't know what they're complaining about. And, and, And in the middle is this kid sitting at the table making a five out of a two. So, so what do we do? What do we do about time? So we indicate the time. So as a teacher, on every assignment I gave, I actually indicate the level and how, much, how many minutes of human life it's worth. Right? And, if, <laughs> and if a teacher has a student who is struggling with perfectionism, I will tell the parents, only allow the child to work on it that long. It's okay if they only get one question done. It's okay. We're going to work with it. We've got to ease them back out. And mm-hmm. so I, I, as a parent, might say, okay, I want you to work on cleaning your room, and that looks like this. One of, the, one of the biggest problems, I guess I'll go on my own tangent here for just a second. One of the biggest things that feeds perfectionism is a lack of feedback or clear direction. Mm-hmm. So when somebody turns in an assignment, even if they get 100 on it, if they don't get feedback of what they did that earned the high grade, then they don't know what they did in order to repeat it. And the next time they go to do an assignment, they feel like they have to try to do everything as perfectly as possible because they don't know how to repeat their success. So we have to make sure that we're giving more feedback than just great job when Mm -hmm. somebody does do something well so that they know what it was that can be reproduced and needs to be reproduced rather than trying to make everything perfect. So I'm hearing I'm hearing three things here. One is I really like this idea of levels and actually teaching kids about there are levels and different levels. I know from my own experience as a perfectionist, I've I had always thought there was only one way of doing something. The idea that there are multiple ways and you can put different amounts of efforts for different things was a very freeing and novel concept when I finally figured that out and wish I would have known that earlier. So that's that's one thing. I also think the thing about time, which is brilliant, is that shows the collabor- the need for the collaboration f- with teachers when the perfectionism affects school, that you're working together to sort of create a shared reality and boundaries. 
real boundaries, which leads to this third point that you made about being very specific with feedback instead of general feedback. So the person who is inclined with more perfectionistic thinking has some um, some parameters and some cones to stay between. So they, they actually get feedback of how they're doing. I agree. And in addition to feedback, we also need to give clear directions. Telling a seven-year-old, go clean your room, is just far too vague. Mm-hmm. They don't know what that looks like. You have to mm-hmm. break it down. And so you might say, I'd like you to go into your room and pick up all the toys that are lying on the floor, and I want you to just work on it for 10 minutes. We're going to set a timer. Just Mm -hmm. knowing that there's a limited amount of time that it has to be done can help kids realize, oh, well, the expectation isn't that I I might make it perfect, but rather I will work consistently for this amount of time. And those three strategies together, the the timing, the levels, and then feedback slash direction, are to me, the go-to yep. base strategies that can, yep. that can have a tremendous positive impact in probably 80% of kids who mm-hmm. struggle with perfectionistic tendencies. And I actually think they're good strategies for any kid. You don't need to be a perfectionist or even be leaning towards it to mm-hmm. have these be effective strategies just in parenting. I and I, I like what you said about it was freeing to you when you mm-hmm. realized it because I think... We have this cliche, an old saying in our culture, that anything worth doing is worth mm-hmm. doing well. Right. And I, I don't agree with that. I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. I mean, I think taking out the trash is worth doing. But what does it mean to, do, <laughs> to take it out well? So that's a one. That's a one on your scale. Being in a yeah. perfect bow. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So, we don't, we don't need to do everything. Not everything is worth doing well. Some stuff is just worth giving. My grandma used to call it a lick and a promise. And I, I think we need to be a little bit comfortable ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. Well, and now, and we need to segue to this job, talk about this job that we have, which we all want to do well, and we certainly can't do perfectly, and that's parenting. And so... This this final question for you is the parent footprint question, and our listeners know that that question means and asks a time when you, as an individual or as a parent, became aware of something about yourself as an individual or parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your kids. So I've had, I have a lot of children, and so I've had a lot of these moments. One of them that sticks out in my mind is my youngest son, and I'll, I'll call him Joseph mostly because that's his name, but my youngest <laughs> son is a great imitator. He, he can imitate people very well. And um, one day I heard him talking to one of his brothers sounding very much like me mm. in a way that, was not great. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. mean. It was yeah. just, I don't know how to describe it, but it wasn't the way I wanted to come across. And I had this moment of epiphany where I realized that I didn't always sound the way I wanted to sound. And that I, being an English teacher in a high school at the time, I sometimes sounded to my children like I sounded to my students. And mm-hmm. I sounded more like their teacher than I did their parent or um, their coach kind of. And so I realized that I needed to alter the way that I sounded to them. And I had to seek feedback to do that. And 
it had a positive impact on my children as I sought feedback from my husband and mm-hmm. from friends of mine who, who would give me a signal when I would turn on what we called my teacher voice and dialing oh, that yeah. back. And yeah, and so that had a positive impact, I believe, on my children in that um, they didn't feel as much like I was, you know, standing there ruler in hand. Um, yeah, and, it, and I want to... Changed- go ahead. You said it changed. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say that it led to this piece of self-awareness for me that a lot of our relationships are based on how we sound and that mm-hmm. we often don't sound like we think we do to other people. We often sound more formal, more forceful than we think we do. And mm-hmm. that seeking that feedback from friends and family can help in all relationships, not just those with our children. Our children are kind of the canary in the mine for our relationships with others. And that if that relationship is unhealthy, it's very, very likely that other relationships in our life are unhealthy as well. And I want to commend you for that. I mean, thank you for sharing that because what you did is you listened and then you were introspective and then you thought about it and then sought out feedback where it would have been just as easy, typical parent behavior to come in and maybe admonish a child for making fun of them uh, directly or, hey, don't talk to your brothers that way, you know, be more respectful. You actually sat there and listened to it and gave yourself the time to become more aware and reflect. And I think, gosh, that seems to be 50% of parenting if we can take the time to do that. So, Lisa. Well, I can't take full credit for it. I had, sorry, I had just read um, Dan Goleman's Emotional Intelligence at Work book and uh-huh. his talking about that a big part of self-awareness is seeking feedback. And that helped me with that. But you're, you hit on the hardest part of it, which was to sit there and listen around the corner, kind of eavesdropping on this conversation without intervening because it was very painful. So hard. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Our time has run out, and I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. I want everyone, there's so much, I've read Lisa's new book. There's so much knowledge, wisdom, great stories, um, and tons of practical suggestions and interventions. Check out her book called Perfectionism, A Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. And Lisa, tell everyone else where they can find uh, your stuff and your speaking and how how to track you. At giftedguru.com, which is spelled just like it sounds, um, giftedguru.com. I have lots of resources there for parents and educators, and they can sign up for a newsletter and get lots of information there, read all the articles I've written are available there and the resources. And so, and if anybody has a question on anything, they're welcome to contact me through that site. And I, I strongly suggest you look at Lisa's writing because it is uh, filled with thought-provoking Um, material that really pushes the envelope with wonderful humor and stories. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the show today. Uh, Really appreciate it. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining in to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. Come check us out at our website, www.parentfootprint.com. Seek your awareness, parent with purpose and intention, And as always, I'll leave you with the same question. What footprint do you want to leave?